Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is episode 14, recorded Thursday, May 10th, 2018. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our fifth of the year, we're going to do something completely new for us. In association with AFP Edmonton area, this is a live podcast recorded at the Chateau Louis Conference Centre in Edmonton. We will be speaking with Katie Hobbins, founder and partner at Caden Avenue Par- Communications, Winston Pye, a digital content strategist from the University of Alberta, and Adam Rosenhart, director of social media strategy at Alberta Treasury Branches, ATV. Our topic, the rise of the machine, technology's rapid integration into the nonprofit sector. The nonprofit sector has not been a bystander to the rapid integration of technology into our workplaces and our work. We have seen the rise of online giving, bots that advise the wealthy, and the impending loss of parking revenue for our hospitals and universities as we move towards using autonomous vehicles. Where is technology taking us, and where will it take us? Are we ready? We have brought together three leaders, each an authority on technology's impact on modern culture, to help us understand just how to best answer these questions and more. Join us as we discuss the rise of the machine coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. Having uh, such a great crowd out here for a AFP Edmonton and area first. We're absolutely thrilled to have uh, an exciting panel here, which we'll we will be recording uh, for a podcast that will be displayed in two weeks, I believe. It'll be launched in two weeks. So uh, without any further ado, we'll kick off the, uh, the live podcast. And again, thank you for coming and uh, enjoy. We have three terrific guests with us today, all leaders in the sector and experts in their respective fields. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. It looks like our audience is excited to be here. So let's get started. So Joining us from ATV, we have Adam Rosenhart. Adam, we met because of this podcast, but your reputation in social media and communications are well known in Edmonton and beyond. We're glad to have you with us. Adam, thank you for saying yes and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, Adam, I was going to talk about uh, your your cool title at uh, at ATV, you know, which is Director of Social Media Strategy on the Media and Story Team at ATV, which we, we can talk about for sure. But... Um, I, a little embarrassment that I want to just share with you. Uh, I do a little prep with the group, uh, you know, uh, with some advanced emails and then a conversation by telephone. And, and I didn't read Adam's bio before I called him. And so, you know, uh, it would have really helped because, uh, I'm scraping the egg off of my face. Um, but I, I talked to Adam. I said, so Adam, have you ever been on a podcast? (laughs) Oh, oh yeah. He said (laughs) without, without an ounce of irony. And I said, Oh, have you ever, have you ever been on a live podcast? Uh, yeah. yeah. And so I've got, okay. So I take it through this thing, like, you know, okay. So he's done a podcast or two. And, um, it turns out he's like, he, uh, I'm a small little <laughs> podcaster and he's a giant <laughs> podcaster. So I'm wondering, Adam, if you would mind, uh, just sharing with us your experiences with podcasts and, and your, like, how do you, what got you into it? And uh, tell us a little bit about the podcast you do and, 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 and just, 
your whole sense of the genre and why it's cool to you. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I got into it was because of vanity. I really like the sound of my own voice. It's a, so, it's about, so it's about ego. Yeah. You'll notice we're both hot mic. We can yeah. talk to each other. Exactly. So I started in, I think, around 2009 with a, a podcast called The Unknown Studio. We interviewed uh, a partner and I interviewed uh, people from Edmonton that were doing interesting things. Uh, that stopped after five or six years. Uh, then two years ago, I launched a podcast called The Expats, where I interviewed Canadians living abroad. Uh, I decided to end that because uh, time is becoming more precious to me as I as I get older. And now I'm the producer of the Dave Berta podcast, which is a politics podcast uh, with Dave Cornway and Ryan Haskin. Now and, Win- and Winston now knows who I am. Yeah, now. yeah. Woo! yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So th- th- thanks very much, Adam. Also joining us this morning is, well, her online persona is Katie Dane, but her name is Katie Hobbins. But thank you, uh, Katie. <laughs> when I asked you, when I asked AFP Edmonton for suggestions for our panel, they were unanimous in suggesting I reach out to you. And I'm so pleased you said yes. Thank I'm you for that. Happy to be here. You're welcome. Um, Katie, your bio speaks to so many amazing accomplishments and talents. One in particular of in, is of interest to me. Um, they all were, but, but I'm one of the last baby boomers or maybe one of the first Gen Xers, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but it's your proficiency and my lack thereof with Instagram. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can help me and maybe a few others who are kind of in my age bracket and, and older understand what is what do the kids see in the gram and, uh, <laughs> and what, what am I missing? What are they missing? And why missing? has the platform become so important? I mean, she, she asked me that when we were doing our conversation this morning, she, she, she said, so what's your Instagram handle? We don't have one in the trail, and we clearly need one. So tell us, tell us about what, what the heck is going on with Instagram. What's going on with Instagram? Um, I'm biased, but Instagram is my personal favorite social media medium. Um, I just I love it because it's visual, but it's also storytelling. It's the perfect mix of both, in my opinion. And so if you see me with my phone out, I'm not texting people. I'm probably just working on my Instagram story, which is why I asked him for his handle. Um, I feel like everything I do these days, I document on my instagram my friends like joke they're like if you didn't instagram it didn't even happen if you didn't instagram go to the gym did you go to the gym today if you didn't instagram your bike ride did you go on a bike ride but um it's it's just a really cool window into people's lives um brands uh it's a great way to share your brand story and it's it's super creative i love it yeah and i I, my daughter's got like five instagram accounts so just keeping track of that is so just by a show of hands, because we can't hear you on the podcast, how many people here have Instagram accounts? Okay, so I am a lonely soul. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, cl- I clearly need to do so. Thank you, Katie, for, for sharing that little bit. And feel free to, you know, fold in Instagram stories throughout today's uh, conversation. Um, our third panelist is Winston Pye with the University of Ar- Alberta. Winston and I have known each other most of our professional lives. Uh, we first worked together in our, early in our careers at the U of A. And we've been friends and colleagues ever since. So welcome to the podcast, Winston. Thank you. Uh, Winston, I, uh, I open up the podcast uh, with questions about uh, sort of technology and media to, to your fellow panelists. Um, I asked them both about those topics. And I know you have lots to say on this topic as well, I have no doubt. But we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but first, uh, I know we're about to go back in time. I know that you're a great lover of books, you know, like real hard copy books. I'm wondering if you can share with us your thoughts on on why books remain so important today. Um, uh, you know, it, it, they were important a generation ago. They seem to be still important today. Um, but pre-internet, pre-audible, pre-Kindle, they were they were the thing. And now, 
Why are they so important today? I am very glad you asked that. Um, he didn't know I was asking him that. Yeah. So I am a big nerd, but uh, at, at my heart, I'm an old school uh, bibliophile. And the way I finally figured out how to rationalize this all is to compare it to food. Um, doesn't matter what the vitamins are out there or that I can have a breakfast drink in a bottle. Every once in a while, I still want to sit down and properly enjoy the exact same food, the exact same nutrients, but with the color and the smell and the whole experience. And so um, coming to my house, you wouldn't know that I'm a big computer geek because it's it's a library. It's all books. And uh, I think of the stories that we tell as different performances of the same piece of music. And so um, everyone talks about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but it's a way different thing to hear it with a big choir or a small choir or in a big hall or when you hear a, a band play a piece of music, acoustic, unplugged, it's this exact same piece of music, but it's completely different. And so uh, for me, what I love about the technology, I still, I think of paper making as a communications technology. I think of book binding as a paper technology. And so for me, it's just that these, the new tools are just different ways to tell the same stories. And I'm fascinated by how that changes your experience. And, for me, there's still a place for the one-on-one -on -one meeting when you're doing fundraising, the handwritten letter, the thank you note on paper, even while we're doing all this other stuff that does amazing reach. Uh, you, there's still a place for all those things. And so uh, my interest is, uh, a lot of times is just what is it that actually is useful about a new piece of technology for telling what still is basically the same story. It's just how you get people interested in what you're doing. Thanks, Winston. Um, you almost answered my question. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you, went, you went down the technology path, which is awesome. Um, but, and, but I do know that you have a large collection of books, so I wanted to give people a sense of that. So, okay, let's get started. Thanks, Winston. Uh, thank you all for joining us on this, our 14th podcast. Today's topic, the rise of the machine, technology's rapid integration into the nonprofit sector. Every generation in recent memory lays claim to it being the generation the most impacted by the pace of technology. In the 1940s, it was the technology of the atom. In the 1960s, we saw the race to the moon. In the 1970s and 1980s, it was the desktop computer. In the 1990s and into the 2000s, we saw the rise of the internet and the ubiquitous of cell phones. In recent years, we have seen the emergence and dominance of the smartphone and other mobile platforms. Today, the world is poised on the precipice, I wonder if I can say that word again, precipice, of AI, autonomous vehicles, and augmented reality, to mention just a few. The nonprofit sector has not been a bystander to these innovations. We have seen the rise of online giving, bots that advise the wealthy, and the impending loss of parking revenue to our hospitals and universities. Autonomous vehicles don't need to park. Uh, so, uh, where is the technology taking us and where will it take us in the nonprofit sector? Are we ready for this change that is about to overrun us? Are we driving the change or is change driving us? Adam, let's start with you. Are we in charge of the machines or are they in charge of us? Uh, that's a really tough question. I, I feel most days like they're in charge of us. Um, you know, just the way that tech is integrated in our lives, and, and we, all, we often get told, especially like in communications, 
you need to be using certain platforms. You have to understand uh, how Facebook works. It's funny because Katie and I were talking before we started recording that a lot of bad advice being given is, well, Facebook Live is available. You should go live because everyone gets a notification that you're live. But what if it's garbage, right? <laughs> what if it is, what do we call it? The dumpster fire? Of, uh, the slow burning dumpster fire. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's Ryan's life. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's what he drove here in today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so, so I feel like, I feel like it's easy for us to get swept away by what technology can do and are the challenge that we're all facing as communicators, as fundraisers, whatever is to be really strategic and precise about the way we're choosing to use technology. And it's interesting that you talk, Winston, about the, the you know, paper making and thank you cards and that sort of thing, because every, every not-for-profit board I've ever been on, we talk about the ways we can reach more people. But the things that make true connections aren't really technological. People love the handwritten letter from the, the ED or whatever. You know, like these are really high-touch uh, interactions. And so I, I, I think I worry about us throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to technology and forgetting about the things that have worked and continue to work for us. So you said the machines are in charge of us. Yeah. And we shouldn't let them be. <laughs> okay. What do you think, Katie? Huh, that's a tough one. Um, you can take us in a totally different direction if that's a boring question. No, it's not a boring question. I, I don't know that the machines are in charge of us, but sometimes... Yeah, maybe they are, and they're driving the train, and they're going past the station, and we don't always realize we're going past the station, or we've missed the station even. Like, we're on the platform, and the train's going by. I feel like that's happening a lot. Um, I find that every day I wake up, I, it's like a new learning day for me. I'm like, okay, what is happening today in the world of social media and technology? And I, I have to spend like an hour just kind of figuring out what's different, what's Mark Zuckerberg de being deposed for, like, how's that going to affect me and what I do in Edmonton? Um it's just a crazy landscape and it's tough to be on top of everything. And so like Adam said, like not everyone needs to be jumping on every new platform, but it's tough to always know where you should be, where you don't need to be. How does that integrate into what you're actually doing in real, real life? Right. The, keeping up with the pace of tech is pretty challenging. I would suggest for most of us there. Yeah. Winston. Uh, I, I think I draw a comparison to the wizard of Oz. It's uh, I think, Machines are a good doing doing a lot of doing a lot of things, but it's there's a person behind the curtain usually. So um, I, again, this is probably going to be my theme for the day is pulling back to the old things. Um, breakfast, we've got the orange juice back there and the bacon. That is entirely the product of a marketing campaign from I, I can't remember exactly when, but like the 1940s or 50s, and uh, you could argue the same thing that, well, somebody went and took the communication tools of the time and managed to convince the entire North American continent to eat more bacon and drink orange juice as a breakfast food. Um, so in that respect, I, I think it's more the machines will only be in charge if we stop thinking about it. Um, if we decide to let ourselves be the drones, then we'll be the drones. So, uh, and, and, I don't know. If, I'm not sure who's in charge right now. Actually, okay. Okay. I'm really not okay. sure. I think it's Vincent. Actually. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're uncovering the fact that I'm actually not a human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. 
Well, a lot of people have said that about me, Adam. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my, but I mean, when we think about, I always like to think about what's it going to be like in two years, in five years, in, in 10 years because of the, the pace. And so, you know, what are the, the good things that technology is pointing us at? And what are some of the things that are scary things that are, that are out there? Uh, I, I both love and fear my Google Home Assistant. Right. Uh, Did anybody see the Google announcement this week where they will make phone calls that you cannot tell the difference from? Most of the nerds in the room said that was creepy. Yeah. But imagine, imagine a future where you're like, Hey Google donate uh, $25 to stars. Like that, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, I think you can do that already with Alexa. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I I did a story on it a few weeks ago where where Alexa has, what, what do they call it? Skills. Mm-hmm. Those skills in Alexa, and and some of them are like uh, in the U.S. You can say donate to the Red Cross, fifty bucks, and it just does it. Yeah, it's like it feels kind of Skynetty, but uh, but ultimately, like I think we just you know we have to be the I think you know Vincent said it we have to sort of be the masters of it, and it's important for us to understand the implications of things like Mark Zuckerberg sitting before a Senate committee, like the way that our information gets used and the way that customer information gets used, I think we're not always fully aware of. And that's something we have to be stewards of because um, because of the relationships we're trying to build with people. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I love my Google Home Assistant, but but you but you're a little scared of it. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, when did you did you guys hear about when Alexa just started like laughing? <laughs> that's that's some scary stuff right like if you ask if you ask alexa to do things like uh well i, I was with a couple of two-year-old three-year-old boys who were and we were exploring alexa in our home and they were they just loved having me ask it questions and so finally i said alexa can you fart and she did <laughs> <laughs> and they thought that was awesome <laughs> They rolled on the floor for like, like 10 minutes. That's how you hook a generation of children and men. <laughs> uh, we, we are, a, 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 let's face it, the fart we, we, we yeah. thought that was funny even now. <laughs> yeah. I feel like... I feel like I'm like the extreme. I could, I would automate my entire life if I could. Like, mm. I, I honestly don't care. Like, Google can know everything about me and Facebook. I like when I get targeted with ads that actually fit me. I'm like, ah, yes, I've been clicking on all the right stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand how that freaks people out. A lot of people don't really understand what's going on behind the scenes and why suddenly they've maybe said in a text message or maybe they Googled trip to Mexico and now suddenly all they're seeing is trips to Mexico and car rentals and vacations and excursions to do. And they're like, how is this happening? So I think it's important that we remain educated on how our information is being used, especially when we're joining um, all these social media platforms and when we have our brands and not only that, but we're using our, um, our clients and our donors information as well. We just need to make sure we know how that information is being used by these platforms, and then it's a little less scary and a little bit more empowering. You've just hit the nail on the head with respect to especially um, uh, your generation, if I could put it that way, yeah. a, a much more comfortable, if you look across the, the surveys, much more comfortable with, with a heavily automated life. Yeah. Um, and much more comfortable with uh, the cost for that heavily automated life being less privacy. Yeah. In, in, as long as it's known and controlled privacy. Yeah. Like if you watch my Instagram story and you, if, if you wanted to kill me, you probably could. <laughs> like, <laughs> if 
Katie, don't say that. It's <laughs> true, though. I was thinking it never occurred day. to me to do that. No, <laughs> no. Now, now you're going to. Shoot. For the listening audience, Adam is writing copious notes. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember when I joined the internet, probably in like, I don't know, 1996. I would have been six for the record. My parents were like, never tell anyone your name. Don't put your address in. They like made me this really ambiguous screen name for like this chat room that I was in. And I'm like, here I am at this place. Now I'm going here. I'm on my bike. I've tagged my location. You can come find me. This is where I'm going to be later. And like, honestly, like it's crazy. But mm-hmm. I just feel like my generation is that's where it's going is sharing every aspect of your life on the Internet. I think that uh, I I'm depending on the day. I'm like you, Katie. I'm like, I'll, I'll broadcast everything I'm doing or. Then the next day, I'm like, oh, my God, people are going to know I'm on vacation. I'm going to get robbed. <laughs> there was this um, this uh, organization in Edmonton. I think this was probably about five years ago. They were they were going to do an event and they were going to bring a whole bunch of social media influencers together to write a piece of music and play that piece of music together. And they um, they wanted me to be part of this thing that they were doing. So they. They figured out my favorite coffee shop is Elm Cafe. They bought what, me which one is it? Elm Cafe. Okay. They bought me seven lattes. There was a poster inside the Elm Cafe that said, "Hey Adam, you get seven lattes." And I was like, "What the hell is this?" And the clerk was like, "I don't know." Some dudes came in here and said they wanted to buy me lattes. So they did this series of things. They sent mini eggs to where I was working because I really like mini eggs, as you can see. Um, and then uh, Adam's very spelt. Yeah. And then a couple days later, there were posters posted throughout the neighborhood I live in with my face on them. Oh, no. <laughs> and I lost my mind. And I was like, you guys can't do this. It's terrifying. It's like single white female kind of stuff. And and uh, so that's what I mean by being judicious in the way we use data. Uh-huh. One of the things we talk about at ATB all the time is... I mean, you know, we're a, we're a financial institution. We collect a lot of information on people. We have to be very careful with how we use it. It's not enough to just collect a ton of data. You have to be intentional about the ways in which you use it. And you have to be, I would suggest, customer-centric or donor-centric. Um, these are our, our stakeholders. They're our constituents. We have to honor them because without them, our organizations don't exist. So, uh, so be judicious with, we need to be judicious with what we're doing with data and how much data we're willing to give up, I think. And there's also needing to be aware of what the default setting is for mm-hmm. those users. So the, the, if we're going to talk generational differences, um, the, I don't know that there's anything necessarily wrong with living a more public life. But if that is your default and you just assume that's the way it's going to go, you're less likely to be surprised when posters show up or the wrong ad comes your way. Um, I, I think of actors, uh, famous movie people. The paparazzi has sort of been this thing that they've always had to deal with for a long time. But until recently, film cost money. And so people wouldn't take a thousand pictures. And so the chances of your privacy being violated we're a little more just naturally restricted because these photographers were lugging actual equipment around. It cost them a lot of money to take any picture. Uh, now, uh, I mean, we could take a million photos in the next hour with the phones in this room, and they're all on the Internet. And part of it, I think, is juggling those expectations. Um, 
I get surprised when my photo shows up anywhere or I show up in a Google search. My kids are surprised if they don't. And so, um, for them, you know, for, 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 uh, for them to have a, let's say a charity, check them out on Facebook and send them a custom gift, that would be like, well, that's what you should be doing. That's just how it's supposed to be. It would freak out, uh, like more private donors who donate anonymously and expect it to actually be an anonymous donation. And so, uh, I think that's the, for me, the biggest challenge is that it's the, it's the speed of change and just how much the technology can do now. Um, we're doing the same stuff, but it's like, I, I love the fact that you're going to continue to give us an, analogies about uh, like film. No, I, I, that was a fantastic analogy about the fact that film costs money back in the day. And now it's just, it's digital. I want to come back to um, something that was talked about. Maybe we could explore a little bit around data and its treatment in the for-profit realm, like at ATP, and data and its treatment in the not-for-profit not realm. And I guess the question is, is um, are, we, are, we, are we treating, are we giving it the same amount of respect in both those realms from, from the group's perspective? Do you have a sense of, do you think ATP takes better care of the data than the University of Alberta? Um, and I know I'm putting you on the spot when yeah. I say that I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not asking you to throw the U of A under the bus. I'm asking just to give some sense. You guys want to talk about David Suzuki? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, just could kidding. we? <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually don't know the answer to that question, Vincent, but I know, like, I know that we have to be, we're legislated that, you know, we're governed by the Banking Act in Canada. Uh, as an organization, we, there are certain things we can't do with user data without express consent. And I and I, I know that everyone in this room a few years ago had to deal with Castle, all that nonsense. Castle about, and in our world, Foyt. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So so um, I think that ATB is weird, right? Because we're, we're, we have a single shareholder, uh, the premier. Uh, according to people who talk to me on social media, we're Rachel Notley's bank. Uh, that's, so Adam, just, just a little segue. Yeah. You, you know that I'm going to pull that out as an audio that's clip, great clip. and it's going to be it'll be um uh and the topic today is atb is weird <laughs> i'm kidding i won't do that um you know we're we're quasi-governmental we're a crown corporation uh so we i we i think we hold ourselves to a, a bit of a higher standard because we feel we have to there's so much scrutiny around what we do so i i like to think we are good stewards of, of user data um i i'm not aware of any issues where you know binders full of of customer information has been stolen and we, and we care a lot about encryption and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think I don't, I can't speak for the not-for-profit sector. When, when I've been involved in not-for-profit organizations, I always find the challenge is having the right tools and funds to acquire tools to manage data. Right. So I, We're I, not I, resource like the for-profit sector. No, no. So I, 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 I'm not worried about any of the, of the NFPs that I, I work with or that I donate to. And my data, but I think there are additional challenges that they face that private sector organizations probably don't with when it comes to data integrity and that sort of thing. What about your thoughts, Katie or I? I don't know the answer to your question about for profit versus nonprofit either, and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. But from my perspective, working in communications in a nonprofit, it was in interesting because um, as a communicator, you want to be publicly facing. You want to be able to raise money for your for your organization and for your foundation. And then 
in the nonprofit world, a lot of the work that you do is actually quite sensitive. So I always found that to be an interesting dichotomy, trying to be able to tell people's stories and use that as collateral for fundraising, because Mm -hmm. it is, it's great collateral for fundraising and for storytelling, Mm -hmm. but then still ensuring that your um, operational arm of your nonprofit organization is satisfied with the level of scrutiny that you've used and the level of respect that you've given to the, not just the data, but like the people that mm-hmm. you're using, basically. I think that's an interesting observation. And it's one, I'm, you, know, you, you straddle both, both worlds on the communication side and you see marketing professionals who work a lot in the for-profit sector when they're working in the not-for-profit sector going, well, that's a great story about, you know, that child's illness or that person's struggle with addiction. Um, can we profile that? And it's not as straightforward in, in our nonprofit world as it is, say, in, in, in a more clear marketing world where you want to show a family doing something. Winston, what are your thoughts? The, the thing I think that, and this is, I guess, across all those sectors, is that, uh, and this can be an advantage and a disadvantage, especially for smaller nonprofit groups, this, what the technology does is really give everybody superpowers. So... Um, one person with a smartphone can be as loud as the entire ATB marketing arm or the University of Alberta. And uh, that's, I think, where it gets where it gets very interesting. So the, the advantage, though, that um, unlike the paparazzi or a large fundraising organization, a little charity of three people now potentially has as loud a voice as the United Way or the University of Alberta. But uh, there are still those constraints where, um, yeah, you don't want to just go live because that tool is free if you don't have a proper backdrop or, you know, makeup actually suddenly matters if you're doing a video podcast and not an audio podcast. Shoot, and- I always forget that. <laughs> Why we're, it's why we're still on audio. I've got a face for radio. And so there, there's, there's still constraints, but it, it's, I think it, it's almost like the, the, the origin stories for superheroes where these smaller charities are going, Oh, wow. We suddenly now have access to a mailing list of a hundred thousand people. We suddenly can click a button and every one of those hundred thousand people gets our fundraising newsletter. Um, that power is, uh, amplifies so many things so quickly and we were talking beforehand about some of the current controversies online um yeah suzuki is one uh videos of every racist act that you know 50 years ago was completely hidden it boom all of a sudden everything you do is you know you've got super muscles for what that does and it's interesting trying to navigate um fact that you can you have this reach and maybe you don't want to use it we, we were talking about that before mm. up my analogy game to winston's level i think there's so many analogies <laughs> so i want to i want to i want those i mean we can follow a lot of threads here but i'm curious let's stretch into the future a bit what does what's changing what what is technology going to enable us to do in five years that's not doing now what's going to be different about how charities interact with you and i'm asking you to to put yourself out there, you're, we can we can imagine all kinds of things. But what are your thoughts? What's going to be different about charities in ten years? I think one of the one of the big things that we are talking about in, in my industry is uh, in the banking industry is do we need banks anymore? 
Like there was a, I had this experience where a colleague, my, my colleague's daughter was out and about in the city and she needed to buy lunch. She didn't have any cash with her. So there were the mom and daughter were sort of trying to figure out the ways in which she could get money to her daughter. And she, I, I made her take a photograph of a $5 bill and see how that worked. Uh, she wound up loading up her daughter's Starbucks card and then she went to Starbucks and got lunch. Now, we don't need banks anymore. Like you could you could truly deposit your entire paycheck into a Starbucks card and that could be the way you move you choose to move through the world. Google and Amazon are creating financial institutions. There's something called the Cash App that you can use to basically bypass financial institutions. So we're trying to think about 10 years from now banks won't exist as we know them today. So we are looking at things like blockchain uh, technology and how we can basically help people with their identity and manage manage their privacy truly. I mean, it's been really fascinating watching some of this stuff with Facebook blow up um, because I think people are starting to wake up to the idea that they're, they could be in control more. And so if you think about things like blockchain... Can you just... Un- unpack blockchain for folks in the audience <laughs> because uh, uh, let's bitcoin uh, uses blockchain technology yeah. for example i'm i'm not very good at explaining it but it's basically it's it's tokenizing transactions and only giving the correct amount of information to the receiver of the transaction sure. so like if does anyone use apple pay like mobile wallets on your phone you can just touch your phone to a thing and what it does is the when you activate this it says uh, it sends a token from your phone to Apple that says, we want to run a transaction for $67 and 22 cents. Uh, this is Katie. And can you confirm that it's Katie? Yes, it's Katie. And we've authorized the transaction for only that amount of money. And then anything that the vendor that Katie's paying, they, anything they know about her vanishes after that transaction is done. So I think that if you look at things like, um, CRA. How many people remember their CRA password? I always have to phone and ask. Right. But, so you're a freak, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> but right, so Heather, you've been outed as a freak. You don't need it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you can log in with your you can log in with your banking credentials, and I think that's the beginning of the tipping point of the way that we allow our data to be exchanged. Yeah. Well, and, the classic. Uh, do you want Google to sign you in? Do you want Facebook to sign you in? Yeah. Blockchain technology is also interesting in that all the transactions that ever occurred are held within the chain for all time. Yeah. So everything that Adam ever did with Bitcoin, uh, every transaction and all the other transactions in the world are actually held in every transaction, which is interesting from a, from a perspective of, say, I'm a donor and I want to follow up. I gave the stallery a gift. And I directed it to neonatal. And so using blockchain technology in the future, I could actually tell or have a way of knowing that that flowed from the stallery to that fund called neonatal without the stallery talking to me. That could be enabled through blockchain. Yeah. So there are future issues around that. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of the lens I'm looking at this through the, through right the blockchain. Now. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't think we'd go dark that early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What else? I actually use Apple Pay on my phone all the time, and now when I go through the Tim Hortons drive-through, I have to touch the thing, but it uses my face to recognize that it's me using my credit card. So I have to be like, <laughs> <laughs> and the people are like, the drive-through ladies, like, what are you doing? Yeah. But Miss, I'm like, I gotta you, show my face. How did you crash into the drive-through window? <laughs> 
<laughs> trying to put my face to my phone to the debit thing. Oh, and like man. if I have a double chin, it like sometimes doesn't recognize me, I find. Like when I look in the morning, it's like face not recognized. I'm like, oh. So show of hands, who uses some form of Google Pay, Apple Pay, something touching, hands up. Oh, wow. Not that many in the room. Um, so it's I can't get feedback from this right now. But later on, if someone would mind sharing when we do the Q&A part, if they'd share with us um, uh, why they're not using it. Honestly, yeah. the, the way that I sort of got into it was... Uh, I was I was buying coffee and I was holding my phone. I was looking at my phone and then they're like, "Okay, that'll be you know uh, seven dollars." And I was like, "Okay." So I put down my phone, I pulled out my wallet, I pulled out a card, and I was like, "I've got all this on my phone and I'm already holding it in my hand. I feel like an idiot." <laughs> and uh, but it, you know, it, it took me a while because we having a wallet with with plastic in it is it's like it's a learned behavior. The moment you have a bank account. Or a scene card, I guess, if you're younger. Um, it's just, it's really hard to stop doing that sort of thing. Yeah, and I feel like I'm almost the opposite. Like, I'm very of the generation that uses technology. And the other day, I had to go to the police station to get a record check done for one of the clients I was working with. And they told me I couldn't pay in cash, I couldn't pay credit, I couldn't pay debit, I could only pay money order or check. And I was like, Wow. I don't write checks. You want me to fax that to you? Yeah. And they were like, hey, well, you have to go to the bank. So I had to go to the bank, get a money order, bring it back. And I was like, this is the weirdest process. I don't even remember the last time I went into a bank. And relating that back to the nonprofit sector, I think looking into the future, people who are going to be your big donors eventually are my generation. Right now, we're probably all really broke still. But eventually, we're going to have money to donate to you. And we're not suddenly going to be like mailing in our direct mail gift like mm-hmm. i tried to mail something once and i forgot to put a stamp on it and my mom <laughs> gave it back to me. sorry i feel like awesome. i'm just embarrassing myself on this That's podcast true. with all of my terrible like inability to use paper um well it's the exact problem that the older generation has suddenly trying to figure out how yeah, to use like their we're, phone we're for things crossroads yeah. where like i don't know how to mail something and my dad doesn't know how to use apple pay and i'm like what what oh stamps right and he's like what you just paid for that with your phone and i'm like what why are you still Taking cash out of the bank account. And and a lot of it, and it comes down to trust. I mean, that's the entire basis for the banking industry is we are trusting some stranger, essentially, to take our money and keep it safe for us. Um, We were uh, giving Facebook our information and trusting that they were keeping it safe for us. Um, That was stupid. (laughs) Like, but thinking back, that was pretty (laughs) stupid. Uh, but then if you look at the banking collapse in the U.S. in years past, again, we were all where the, that trust got violated through that. Mm-hmm. And but we're used to these these ways of doing things. And mm-hmm. um, and I used to work in I.T. and we always said it's the, the, the triangle is security and convenience and cost. And you can only pick two. And convenience wins like every time. And so. For, for donations, like in five years, the people who are going to get the donations are the people who make it easiest. So if you're still doing like the police checks and you need to send in a check and fill out a pledge form and all this sort of stuff, that's going to be, that, that's going to be an impediment. Like yeah. um, these days, like what is it? You, you know, every, every time there's a Red Cross disaster, text something to a number and boom, in, in five the UK, bucks. In. They're using, uh, their phones to make their um, gifts in church, their their collection plate activity. So they have they actually have contactless terminals in some big churches 
And, and I learned from somebody that there are some organizations in Calgary that do the same thing. So in Canada, so well, yeah. who, care, who carries change anymore? Right. They pass the collection yeah. plate around. You're, Katie's probably just like putting her phone in. <laughs> <laughs> like I've decided to give you a six hundred dollar iPhone. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Actually, there you go. If anyone is doing fundraising for a church, that's what you need. Is you need a the tap in oh, yeah, the no, in the, the no yeah. in the bottom of the the collection plate. Oh, no, that's exactly what they have. That's oh, so you tap the, the oh no, you, the, it's a wireless collection plate. Oh, beautiful. Right? So it's there just like tap. Go. App? Aren't they all wireless connection collection plates? I just got to go plug it in. <laughs> all right, all right, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair, fair point. Uh, th- thank you for correcting my 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 very obviously bad metaphor. Okay, <laughs> sorry for calling you out like that. No, it's good. I appreciate it. We've gotten to know each other a lot better on this. Note to self: Never invite Adam to podcast. But I mean, I mean, going back to what you said about private versus nonprofit. I mean, it's still about how to make the transaction as smooth as possible. I um, discovered how Apple Pay works for paying on websites by accident. Uh, so I, I don't know if you, you, who, if anyone else has tried this. I went online to buy a book at a, at a right. website <laughs> and clicked on the little payment methods. You got the usual ones, and I saw, oh, there's a guy Apple Pay. Oh, that's cool. What? How does that work? And I clicked on it. And my phone flashed. What does everybody with a smartphone do as soon as the phone flashed? Oh, unlock it. What had actually happened is because my computer knows me and knows that I have this phone, as soon as I picked Apple Pay on my computer, it sent a little thing to my phone that said, hey, can you check that this is actually Winston? Get him to unlock his phone, and then I'll know it's him, and that means the payment can go through. So I went and checked my phone, and it said, payment approved. And I looked up and went, what did I just buy? <laughs> and because I had not set up Apple Pay with my current, uh, I recently changed jobs. So the, the confirmation had gone to a work address that didn't exist. It was going to ship it to a place that I didn't have access to anymore. It was a gong show. It's still your fault. It's still my fault. But this is the, the part where old school comes into play again. I immediately emailed the company. Turns out that company is one guy here in Edmonton, and he replied by email and said, no problem, I'll take care of it. Canceled the transaction, and I remade the purchase properly, updated all my information. But so it was a warning that, yeah, be careful, because the whole goal, whether you're a nonprofit or you profit like is, a grumpy old man. I am. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely am. It's like back in my day, people would phone and check the bank before they gave my money away. And, That's a great story. And but Thanks it, for the cautionary tale. It, it is a cautionary tale. But the problem is now I'm like, Wow, that's really easy. And now every time I go on, it's like I can buy stuff anywhere by just tapping my phone, click a button. The the thumbprint is just that's great. It's pushing money out my bank account so fast (laughs) all the time. So we thank you for that. Uh, We have reached the point in the program where we want to maybe have some audience involvement. So um, I think we've got a wireless mic. Uh, Mary is running; she's sprinting to the mic. Um, and so, uh, if, if you've got questions for us, and I hope you do, and, uh, if you don't think of some, um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, know that you're going to be famous on our podcast by making those questions happen. So who, who wants to start? Ah, 
eager beavers over here at the front table. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Nafisa. I work with the Stellary Children's Hospital Foundation. Hi, Nafisa. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> Some nice familiar faces there. Um, so my question is, I'm of the generation that convinced an organization to join Facebook. Like, I was the generation that, like, we started Facebook there, and we're the ones who kind of made the catalyst. So at the time, I joined and had to have my CEO join to prove why this organization needed to be on social media. So I think part of the problem is, or not problem, what I'm looking for is how do we, this generation, convince older generations in a more timely fashion to adopt some of these new technologies? Because if you don't do it timely, it's op- then you're behind. You're right. five steps behind. And so Katie how do we- said she has to get up every day and see what changed. <laughs> exactly. So how do we, you know, ha- or arm ourselves with information or, you know, convincing reasons why to adopt these principles now to the generation who are our leaders who are a couple generations above us do you have any advice on that (laughs) (laughs) hi ray how are you i you know so i think <laughs> honestly ray, ray wasn't mike yeah so, so in the audience uh one of our younger gentlemen said speak slowly for the older generation um i think that uh, i think that working with and i used to be a consultant so um i'm gonna plug katie for her work with people like katie because they they are she's waking up every morning with the face recognition phone thing and and uh, and doing the research and trying to figure out what's new in the world and what could work for organizations. So I think that's one place you can start is to bring a little bit of independent knowledge into the conversation to help convince. But I always find the best way to convince certainly executives where I work is to tell them the story. What, what could it look like? Like paint the picture for them. Um, don't just talk about the features of the platform. Talk about the benefits and then explain how you might implement it for your organization. Um, you know, we are we have a Snapchat account at ATB that we don't do anything with because we're under-resourced for it. But, you know, if we're targeting the next generation of, of customers who we want to work with in financial institutions, we've got the business case. It's written. I just don't have the full-time people to do the work. So um, it was. It actually wasn't that Sorry, hard. I'm just trying to wrestle with Snapchat and banking, but clearly that's where it's going. But but think about it. So it's it's financial confidence and financial literacy for our, the youngest generation of people on social media. They don't want me to tell them about the features of our new checking account. They want to know how they can start saving for retirement in a way that isn't like you need to be putting half of your your salary away. So you I think. Yeah. Yeah. The, the snap streak is actually the answer. But but <laughs> work with people who have the knowledge. Um, if, if you if you're fortunate enough to have the money to spend on something like that. Otherwise, get your ducks in a row. Tell the story of how this will help the organization move forward. I actually have um, it's like a volunteer position that I'm in and I do the social media for this organization. And at the time that I started, which was just a few months ago, they only had a Facebook page and they said, present to us a business case for why we need Instagram. And I wanted to just write, it's 2018. What do you mean? A business case for Instagram? Like, just what? Let me make an Instagram account. But then I remember that not everybody understands social media. It's a really weird landscape. So I always like to use the analogy that 
by doing social media well and doing social media right, you're basically creating for yourself a free advertising audience that is already a fan of you. They're already dedicated to you. They're already believing and listening to what you say. And it's now your free dedicated channel. You no longer have to pay for a billboard. You don't have to produce a commercial. You don't have to buy a radio ad. You have them right in front of you and you have tools and you can create all of those things basically for free. The only limit is your creativity and your ability to tell your story at that point. And those channels are way easier to measure than how many people responded to a television ad or a mm-hmm. billboard campaign, right? Yeah. So yeah, old school media just doesn't have the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. And a lot of them actually like aren't even consuming traditional media. So the, the measures don't even apply anymore. Unfortunately, okay, I'm not, I am sounding like a grumpy old man. Um, I, th- I think one of the, the things is simply going to be waiting it out a little bit. Uh, the, the, one of the biggest changes to me is just that the next generation is used to always bringing in something new. That's the default mode now. So it's, it's not thought of as a ne- another investment or new infrastructure. It's just, well, it's just what we're doing now. And, I think it was last year that the workforce in Canada actually became the largest segment is the millennial generation in the workforce now. And so five years from now, they're going to be the the middle management level of every organization is effectively going to be from a generation that just automatically saying that we don't have to convince anybody anymore. They'll just do it. Well, I, I, I feel like in a few years, Everything being new every morning is just going to be how people expect things to be. Um, so that, that, that to me is going to be going back to the question about what's it going to look like in five years. I think that'll be the biggest change is that, um, trust and stability are going to be, I, I don't know how I'm going to recognize what constitutes trust and stability, um, which is sort of the hallmark. It used to be the hallmark of the bank is yeah. you can trust us because we will be here and you can count on us. Um, I don't know if people even look for that anymore. Like, so where, how they, the, how people trust you is going to be, um, very interesting. And so, uh, I don't think it's going to be very long before that fight isn't a fight anymore. It's just, hey, what is the new fight? It is now. It is, it is now. And and I'm not sure that there's a good answer. Well, I want to keep the, the question flow going. Thank you for that, guys. Um, I'm uh, I'm Raman. I'm with Stars. Um, I I want to touch on. We I love do, Stars. Thank you. I do too. Um, I have a question for kind of all the panel, but I want to touch on some of the things that you guys brought up. Um, one thing is, um, Katie was mentioning Mark Zuckerberg and his deposition. Um, and in his deposition, or in an interview he did, he said that. Um, I mean, the guy made his career off of exploiting people's data, in, even in the beginning. So it's not that surprising, but. Um, one thing he said was that when he started Facebook, if you were to tell him that like the stability of a democracy would depend on how he handles people's data, he would laugh at you. And that's correct. And I think that too much like power has been given to that organization to do that kind of thing, even unbeknownst to all of us that it was happening. Um, another thing that I think Vincent brought up was the triangle um, of security and cost. And, oh, that was Winston. Yeah. Oh, Winston, sorry. I got your name wrong. It's okay. Um, uh, security cost and convenience and well, a lot of the things that you guys were talking about like apple pay and stuff seem to me to deal a lot more with the convenience part than the security part and so when i think about these two things i'm kind of one of these people that's like isn't the issue anonymity in and of itself and if we got rid of it 
would it make any of these security issues easier? And would it also, from a nonprofit perspective, make it easier for us to sort of argue cause for deletion? So if I if I heard you correctly, were you asking about what would happen if we removed anonymity? Yeah. Like, is, isn't the, the need for security? Because we we all like to pretend that we want our data to secure, but we'll mm-hmm. give it away for free to every platform right. that we're on. Yeah, so that what's is the, the generational point? divide. What is sure. the point? Uh, I think that only works if we're all on a level playing field and it's not an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah. Right? <laughs> hey, Which your is. social score just went up, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I I I feel sometimes it's confounding when, you know, it does feel like an unable play, uneven playing field. And I hope that the future of data integrity and privacy is that, you know, everyone is fully educated about this stuff. What I would say about the Apple Pay example is convenience is the benefit, but security is the feature that no one talks about because consumers don't give, they don't care. They, as long as it works and, and they don't lose money and they don't lose money from their bank accounts, they're, they're okay with it. So, um, I think the future is more more data, but more openness and transparency from platforms about precisely how that's being used and more user user control over our data, mm-hmm. which I don't think we're seeing as much of right now. Right. Is the big one. Um, what, what, what effectively is happening is people are saying, I don't need to be as anonymous as, as a generation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I have a friend whose son uh, had open heart transplant surgery at, I think, like nine months old. And um, they handed the marketing department for that charity their story on a on a golden platter because they started an Instagram uh, Instagram uh, account speaking as the child, talking about going through the process of the tests and everything. And it was a way that the father was processing that entire episode. But they consented to be public with their story they shared it right away and boom right away from a marketing side it's like hey can we you know boost that story can we do a follow-up interview over here and so um it's i'm almost less concerned about the anonymity as long as everyone is informed and is and uh, i mean there are some people that are TMI in their life always. They just they they will share their personal story to a stranger. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And if people are willing to do that, then yeah, it does sort of solve a lot of problems. I'm going to pull back a little bit to your first comment about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and affecting elections and democracy. Um, as a big proponent of social media, I feel like that was kind of the first time that I felt a little bit betrayed by the way social media presents information to us. Like. I was very sure that Hillary Clinton was winning that election and I was a big fan of Hillary. I'm not a Donald Trump fan. And I was honestly like, <laughs> is anyone? I was like devastated when, like, and so confused. I'm like, everything that I was seeing on my social media was telling me that Hillary was going to win. And then I realized that that's because I kind of live in my own echo chamber. I follow mm-hmm. other people who have like-minded ideas and share like-minded things and how do we make sure that we're not just creating echo chambers for people on social media of like, how do we get different viewpoints to people and not just accidentally silo people into these certain aspects? And then how do we as marketers or as nonprofit 
organizations? How do we break through these silos to talk to different demographics of people and not just make sure that we're in an echo chamber where we're like, everyone loves our organization. It's great. We have no negative feedback, but really maybe in this other silo, people are saying bad things about you. Um, and how do we make sure that we're connecting with all different types of viewpoints? We're walking the microphone. Thank you, Katie. We're walking the microphone across there. Well, Mary's sprinting. <laughs> so let's springboard on that. Ray, um, would you tell us who you are? Oh, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Ray Marshall. Sorry. Vince fair fair point. Yeah, Vince and I go way back. We, we kid too much. So let, let's springboard on this. By the way, uh, I have shoes older than you, just so you know. So if, if I... Do you remember me, what sorry. he said about TMI? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So a statement first and a question. I need some help. The uh, So millennials, the M word. Um, so is it a cohort... Or is it a mindset? That's that's what I want to position in here. The second part of that is, so we've been doing some research on millennials because they're telling us as philanthropists we're way behind. Some of our newest research is saying that millennials are actually embracing direct mail because they don't get a lot. And when it comes in, they're, they're, they're absolutely thrilled. Yeah, Katie fell off her chair. She stabbed herself with a fork and rolled her eyes. That's right. But so we're doing direct mail, but now we're doing that with what's called online finishers, where you can get the rest of the story. So two audiences, one. The philanthropic impact we always said for millennials was all about again impact, impact, impact. You have to show me that this works. We're now finding that they're defaulting back to their parents which is more about leadership giving, and we're seeing some really significant gifts to go. So there's another one. They're they're coming back. So which way to go? I mean, A, mindset, cohort. What do we do? I mean, should I? I don't know what I should do. Uh, So we're we're in the process right now of working with an agency to develop personas for eight, eight different audience personas that will inform every single marketing campaign that we do. I, I'm with you. I, I find that I find the word millennial confounding because it's just, like I'm a I was born in 1980. I'm a millennial, but I don't identify as a millennial. I think I'm Generation X. But then that that span goes all the way for like 15 or 20 years on, right? So you can imagine the breadth of experiences that have helped define individuals' lives through that time. You know, um, whether it's social, cultural, that sort of thing. I don't think it's terribly useful to do demographic targeting anymore. It doesn't make any sense because we are now, I think you get better precision with your with your advertising dollars, trying to convince people to, to open their wallets by understanding the individual from a psychographic perspective. So that's what kind of media do they consume? You know, what kind of coffee do they drink? What what gets them excited? What, what do they get out of bed for in the morning? And persona work will help get you to the individual that you want to talk to. So um, you can do that work yourself or you can work with a consultant to do that sort of thing. But I think that's a good starting point because Gen X, Millennials, uh, Generation Alpha, it, it doesn't really mean anything. Thanks for uh, for highlighting the persona idea. That's a great, great concept. Katie, did you want to weigh in on the M word? Yeah, I would say it's more of a mindset than a specific demographic. And that mindset is sort of defined by a group of very busy people with short attention spans. So I don't think... Sorry, what did you say? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that we need to scrap direct mail entirely, even though all my previous comments kind of alluded to that. But (laughs) 
Um, for me, the most recent campaign that I donated to, I ended up donating online, but I received uh, a mailer and I was targeted by Facebook ads. And then eventually I went and donated online, but each touch point was still important to me. Um, I would, I thought about the campaign. I first saw it online, I think probably on Facebook. And I was like, ah, yes, this is back on again. I need to make sure I donate to that. But of course I forgot I got busy. And then I checked my mail like once every two months just to make sure my bills get paid. <laughs> Things that You're talking about your snail mail. Yes, my yeah. snail mail. Yes. So then I checked that. I'm like, oh, right, this thing. I need to do this. And I put it in my garbage pile probably. Um, and then eventually I get retargeted again with probably their next layer of their social media campaign. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to click through this time. And now I'm actually going to donate. So I think that layering your campaigns for millennials is really important. Um, I've heard that on average, somebody sees something three times online before it actually resonates with them. And they actually click through and take action on that campaign. So just because you've seen something a million times while you're developing it and putting it out there doesn't mean that the audience has been saturated with that. So don't be afraid to show things to millennials through different channels and over and over and over. We need to be reminded constantly. That's great. So, old man, what do you want to say? <laughs> I, I think the the lessons that, that would be useful are to watch what the movie and the TV industry are trying to do. Because what used to be a hit show would be a show that literally 90% of the country would watch at the exact same time, at the exact same day, and, then, and everyone would talk about that the next day. Now it's little niche markets where everyone, a hit show will reach a fraction of the old audience and still be considered a success because you're capturing a segment of the population. And it's definitely, as everyone has said, not demographic. There are people who love the new Star Wars reboot movies. There are people who don't. There are people who, you know, Black Mirror You'd think it would be something I would watch, but I've never even seen a, anything for it. But everyone talks about it. And so... Do you feel left out? I, I, well, no, because I have my things, and I've got the podcast that I listen to about bookbinding, which, you know, a hundred other people in the world listen to. <laughs> so, um, so it's... But what, what the, basically, it's the exact same problem that nonprofits have as the movie industry and TV industry. It's how do I find my audience for my little piece of work that is very valuable? And unfortunately, the old model of while we're all trying for the big foundation gift isn't what's going to happen. And so depending on the audience you're after, you could have the the TV shows where there's the little... um, there's a whole industry around the, the, the zombie show, which I also don't watch. Well, Walking Dead. There's a podcast that happens every day after a new episode comes out where they just talk about the episode. Talking that just, the Talking Dead. Thank you. And that's a whole little thing where they figured out how to really draw in their audience um, the way that that audience wants to be spoken to. And so that's the, the trick is the people who... Well, Net- Netflix does what ATV is doing with personas yes, real time, right? Yeah, right. So they 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 don't they don't look on demographics. They look on taste communities. They call them right called taste communities. So that's so interesting. Thanks for that. I, I'm mindful of folks' time. We've had a couple of questions, and I thought we might get more, but I'm also sensitive that you know we promised that uh, we try to wrap this up in about an hour. So what I'd like to do as we close up is I um uh, I love bringing 
groups like this together. And I'm really thankful that all three of you, Adam, Katie, and Winston, you were able to join us today. Um, I want to give each of you an opportunity to speak about whatever you'd like the group to know about or hear about, and then we'll close up. So I'll start with you, Katie. Sure. You have the floor. I have the floor. I can talk about whatever I want. (laughs) I won't bore you with more stories about how I don't know how to use paper. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my name is Katie. I'm 27 years old, and I run a social media and influencer marketing agency in Edmonton called Caden Ave Communications. Um, I got my start in the communications and PR industry with Stars Air Ambulance in 2013. Um, I'm extremely proud of the work that they do, and I'm grateful for the time that I spent with them because I gained a ton of knowledge. Uh, And so now I work with small businesses in Edmonton and nonprofits to help them tell their story on social media and to help them grow their brands and even to do um, lead generation for new and existing donors. You're awesome. And I highly recommend having a conversation with Katie. I've been so impressed. Thank you. How can they reach you, Katie? What's the best way for people? <laughs> Never, the, the people in the room can, can get to you, but on the podcast, the people are listening. They people wanna, who are listening. Is there, a, is, there a, is there an Instagram handle? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, probably just <laughs> DM me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, my parents made it hard, so I have to spell it for you. It's K-A-D-Y-D-A-N-E. Right. K-A-D-Y-D-A-N-E. Yes. Great. Thanks, Katie. All right, Winston, tell us what you want to know. We want to know. I still have no idea what I wanted to say. Um, (laughs) Okay, great. Moving on. (laughs) Come on, Winston, carry on. Um, Well, while we are dealing with all this thing, I'm going to throw in my my pitch for the small, independent, traditional uh, places. I'm going to throw in the pitch for Audrey's Bookstore, for um, the little independents. I, I think what... The technology and a lot of the news is making us aware of recently is just how much reach these large organizations have, and especially for the fundraising audience. Our work comes down to person-to-person relationships, and that's what any of these tools are supposed to be. So um, I guess just um, definitely get people like Katie involved in your work because they're they are using the tools the way that we use the phone. It's just, it's how you keep connected with people. And I think if we remember that, we can make sure that the machines aren't the ones that end up in charge. <laughs> Perfect. So where can people reach you, Winston? Where, uh, what, like, like is, it, is, is there a Twitter handle? Or, um, uh, you don't have an Instagram? Or I, I have a lot of social media things that I've dabbled about. into in, out of curiosity. My Instagram has four posts on it. So, no. Um, I have a website. I'm, I guess that's Tell old school nowadays. Website. It is blackriders.com. And uh, it's just, it, it was actually named after a book I read about poetry and how poets describe typography as little black riders riding across. The oh, that's cool. And so I'm old school now. Thank you, Winston. All right, you get to close the show out, Adam. Uh, so uh, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for being had. I. Uh, <laughs> So I'm I'm not I'm not in a podcast anymore, but I do produce the Dave Berta podcast. I highly recommend uh, you subscribe. What's interesting about it is that I think we're at a point in in time where no one's really listening to one another anymore. We just want to say the thing that we believe and then Pardon? yell at the people who disagree. Yes, exactly, and then yell at the people who disagree with us. Which what's great about Dave Berta is, and we we actually the three of us, the two hosts and I did the Ontario uh, political checkup tool to figure out where 
our sort of allegiances lie politically. Ryan Hassman, one of the co-hosts, has run twice for the Federal Conservative Party and lost both times. And so he's a he's a conservative. But we but Dave, according to that tool we used last night, is like diehard lefty. He's basically a communist. <laughs> but it's it's a really cool show to get these two disparate voices actually talking to and listening to one another. And I think we need to do more of that. Otherwise, we're doomed to wind up like our friends down in the United States. So check out the Dave Berta podcast. And if you're interested in conversations about social media and digital technology, I do a column on CBC's Radioactive every other Wednesday at 4.40. So I won't be doing, I didn't do it this week, but it'll be happening next week. And if you want to talk to me, uh, the best place to find me is probably on Twitter. My uh, handle is Bingo Fuel, B-I-N-G-O-F-U-E-L. Right. And that's an Air Force term. Yeah, that means you're out of fuel. You're out of gas. Yeah, yeah, out of gas. Bingo Fuel. Yep. Yeah, watch your six. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thank you, folks, for coming out for breakfast to the to the folks from the Association of Fundraising Professionals in Edmonton. We really enjoyed this partnership. And with that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy podcast has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when our topic will be, is the device screen our new campfire? Telling our stories in the 21st century. Joining us will be Larissa Grosh, an associate with Betrayal Group, Leah Eustace with Blue Canoe Philanthropy, and Dr. Ron Strand, also with Betrayal Group. Talk to you then. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth. <laughs>